podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. episode, I talked to Rabbi Popko about the connection between religion and well-being, as well as the dangers of religious intolerance and the freedom religious people have in the United States. As an Orthodox Jewish, Rabbi Popko has encountered people in the United States who were clearly dedicated Christians. Each and every encounter reflected a high level of mutual respect and understanding. The United States has been the first country in history to not only successfully create a full-fledged secular democracy, but to be the first one to allow people with radically different religious beliefs to live side by side in peace writes Rabbi Popko. Rabbi Popko is a speaker, writer, teacher, and bipartisanship advocate. His TEDx talk, The High Price of Political Polarization, focuses on the impact current hyperpartisanship has on us. Rabbi Popko has been published in more than 20 publications, including The Hill and The Wall Street Journal. Here is the interview with Rabbi Popko. In your own words, who is Rabbi Popko? So I am a rabbi, a writer, and an educator, uh, very passionate about the topic of social well-being, religion in America, and education. And it's something that I'm very thankful for, uh, for having the opportunity today to explore the connection between well-being and between religion, faith, uh, and everything that can make our lives better. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Before we begin talking about religion and well-being, I have a few general questions for you. The first one is, what is the difference between being spiritual and being religious? That is such a good question. A lot of people today, studies are showing, are defining themselves as spiritual, but not religious. The Pew study that came out in 2014 
showed an increased number of people who identify as religious, but not necessarily, I'm sorry, as spiritual, but not necessarily religious. And the trend of people who see themselves as spiritual, but not religious, or even religious, but not necessarily belonging to a particular religion is definitely growing in America. I think people, when they speak of religion, they associate it with a specific set of rules, set of beliefs that are either revolving around a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or whatever religion religion it may be. Uh, whereas when you speak about spirituality, it's really the connection that each and every one of us feel to something that is bigger than just our body. We all know we have bodies, but we also all know that there's something that goes beyond the body. And that's where spirituality comes into the picture. It's really feeling that connection to the intangible part of us that really goes uh, way beyond our bodies. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Would you say that uh, part of us that's beyond the body, would you call divine? Uh, so, yeah. So the... Um, the three great religions of the world teach that every human being has a spark of God and is created in the image of God. And so whether it's the way people describe what they see in a near-death experience or the way really the founding fathers decided that freedom, liberty, and human rights are based on our inalienable rights that are connected to our divine part, that all comes back to believing that there's this divine spark in each and every one of us. What is your relationship on a daily basis with this divine part of ourselves, God? That's such a good question uh, because so many people express that connection in so many different ways. Uh, I think what sets Judaism apart from other religions is the institutionalizing of that connection into set rituals. So we believe that spirituality is not something that you'll find necessarily deep in the forest or out there if you go on a meditation retreat where you disconnect from the world, but rather it's in our day-to-day -day actions. It's in daily prayer. It's in charity. It's in studying the Bible, being kind, helping your neighbor we believe that the spirituality, even though it relates to something that's not our body, is very much connected to our body, to our actions, and to the way we carry ourselves. Yeah, I love that. The holistic living, uh, experiencing life as a whole, not separate from God. What is love to you? Uh, that's a question that from Aristotle to the uh, Renaissance thinkers, it's really a question that uh, humans are always trying to get their hand on exactly what the meaning of love is. It's a really tough type of question um, because love can be an emotion, it can be a commitment, uh, and it can be so many other things. I believe that love at its core, uh, you know, there's a beautiful explanation. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. And that's also related to the same word as giving. So love is very much connected to giving, uh, not just taking, but also uh, feeling a responsibility and a commitment uh, to what it is that you love. Mm, giving, right. What is the purpose and the meaning of life, in your opinion? 
Um, the purpose and meaning of life, I think, very much depends on the individual and very much does not depend on the individual. And I'll explain what I mean. There are certain gifts that each and every one of us has. There's no human being who shares the exact same DNA as another human being. There's no human being who looks exactly identical to the other. Yes, of course, there are people who are identical twins and people who are similar to one another. Uh, yet at the same time, there's something really very special in each and every one of us. You know, you mentioned the divine that's in each and every one of us. The idea that we are so deep and so different is just a reflection of how infinite God is because there's no human being that's the same of the other. And yet at the same time, we all come from the same source. Uh, so I think that tapping into that unique part of us is what allows us to really express what's special about us and allows us to do, you know, really live a fulfilled life. And yet at the same time, there are general rules that would apply to everyone. So giving kindness, love, dedication, uh, and really doing good, that is something that's universal and should apply to each and every one of us. Yeah, that sounds very, it resonates with me, the idea of giving, loving, just uh, being the best human beings in our own unique ways, the best we can be. Moving on to the main topic of our conversation about uh, religion and well-being, my first question is, why do organized religion creates so much separation among people? Uh, so I think the person who made, made that point uh, in the most poignant way and the most uh, famous way is John Lennon in his famous song, Imagine, uh, where he says, you know, imagine there's no country, no religion too, uh, nothing to die for or live to for. And uh, it really, I think, reflects that belief that people have that religion takes people apart. Um, and I think that was very true in Europe in the 16, 17, 1800s. I don't agree, just if you look at the numbers in the history, I don't agree that religion sets people apart more than other things. I think that human beings tend to be tribal. And so if it's not religion, uh, it can be replaced with politics or really different kinds of ideologies. So I think people take their tribalism and use religion to follow their tribalism. But I think that overall religion is something that can really bring people together beautifully. And I want to share something with you and your listeners that's so powerful. Uh, a recent study shows that people who attend a house of worship more than once a week have a life expectancy that's uh, seven years longer than their peers. And that's just an incredible study if you think about it. And people go through the different meanings of the study, what it, why people who go to a house of worship may live longer. And I think the agreement of those who look at it is that we need each other to live well. We need to come together with other people. And so it's unfortunate that there have been times where people sort of used religion to be against others. But religion also has this incredible power for us to connect to other people who we don't know. And that's really what religion should be doing today in the 21st century. Mm. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how can we come together 
uh, in the way that you talk about, uh, regardless of our differences, uh, religious and political views? Uh, thank you. And that's a question that uh, in the 1990s in uh, um, Chechnya, Serbia, that really with, with the religious tension or even in Ireland, people really were putting their minds to it, asking themselves, what can we do to make sure that religion is not something that sets people apart and is rather something that brings people together. Um, and I think that it's definitely one of the biggest challenges of today. But I think there is there is hope, there is future. I'll give you an example. One of uh, my best friends is a Muslim chaplain in the NYPD. Very, very terrific fellow, does incredible work in the city with youth and with bringing communities together. And we obviously have different religions. There's no thought whatsoever that he'll come to my side, so to speak, or that I'll come to his side. We, it's, it's funny because in a way, the fact that we're so different makes us feel so comfortable with one another. We know that we're different. We know what our differences are. And so when we feel comfortable in that, I think that that helps us come together. A reason that people felt religion was sort of a divisive issue, I think that happens when one religion tries to pull more people from another sort of team into its side. And I think that once we learn to respect the idea that we're different and that it's okay. We we can be different. And it, it's actually a good thing. It's a good sign that we can live side by side and be different. And I think that allows for people to come together in a more wholesome way. Mm, true. Um, one of the things that I noticed um, yesterday, in a very powerful way, I interviewed somebody about unconditional love, and she was bringing up the subject of political parties and how families, they uh, separate and they fight all the time when they're supposed to come together and have fun. But then if they start talking about Trump, for example, then it's just they become angry and very emotional and creates this very tense environment. How is it possible to change that? So I love the question. I actually gave a TED talk on the topic of political polarization. And I spoke about the fact that you see this most. It's been studied in Thanksgiving meals. It's so sad that something that was a symbol of American family, community, people really coming together. And studies are showing that in the past few years, people are going home less for Thanksgiving if home means a place that doesn't agree with their beliefs. And that's so unfortunate because the value of home, family and community is obviously so much higher than, you know, the value of political opinions. It's interesting. A study was done in the 1960s where people were asked, how do you feel about someone from your family, your child marrying someone from the opposite political party? And you wouldn't believe it, the, the number of people who objected was lower than 5%. Today, that number is higher than 80%. More than 80% of American society would be really not okay with their child marrying someone from the opposite political party. And it's sad because, you know, like you said, you want to get along with people. You want to be able to communicate with people regardless of our differences. 
Um, and I think that it's a question that so many people struggle with. And thank you for bringing it up. I would say that it's sort of a trial and error. Sometimes there are people that you can know that it's okay to discuss your political opinions with, and they'll still be your friends. And there are people that it won't work and that's fine. And so you just won't talk with that person about, about politics. Often it's better to just avoid politics altogether and focus on the friendship and really just ask ourselves, is this political issue, which will make no difference whatsoever on my life, worth this uh, friendship? Is it worth this family connection? And so that's something we need to ask ourselves. It's funny that you mentioned Trump or people who have different opinions. So my my friends who have political opinions that are like radically different than mine, I can be really good friends with because we don't even think that we're going to come close with discussing it. And so we just drop it and move on. It's really when people expect similarity of opinions and those similarities don't end up coming through, that's when you have trouble. So I would say really, uh, you know, it's a good idea to stop and say, is it is this something that's worth it? Is it worth having this conversation? Sometimes it may be worth it to us. We feel passionately about it. But otherwise, I think that, uh, you know, it's better to just assume assume that we won't necessarily come to an agreement. And that's also okay. I think that... Uh, that that is a very empowering thought, a thought that, you know, we won't we won't agree. And that's OK. True. In the case of some extreme political parties or views, do you think it's still OK to avoid asking questions instead of just avoiding the person altogether? Since the things you believe in, it's um, most likely what you are about or what we are about. Let's say some extremists believe in um, violence. It clearly reflects who they are, who they think they are. In that sense, wouldn't that be better to just um, avoid being around people who believe in hatred and uh, violence? And mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is a question. And there are definitely beliefs that are beyond the pale of acceptable right? There's certain things that you just can't accept. They're just not something that you can, the, the, you know, someone's a member of the uh, KKK or other hate groups. You just don't want to be friends with them. There's actually a fascinating story about a fellow who was uh, David Duke from the KKK was his godfather. And he was an active member of the KKK. And he was on campus in Florida, where he encountered an Orthodox Jew. And, you know, obviously this wouldn't be his natural ally. And yet the uh, Orthodox Jew invited him for a Shabbat dinner and they started talking. And over dinner, they realized that, you know, they can maybe sort of be civil and look at each other. And it ended up, you know, they ended up going, I think, on the Today Show. And there was an article about it in the Washington Post. But what happened basically is through those civil encounters of recognizing that they can be friends and have a good time, the person who was so committed to hate, who had a life dedicated to hate, really became a changed man and realized, you know, I should not have been hating these people when in fact, you know, they're not who I thought they were. So I think you're, there are times that we're just better off staying away from certain 
people, groups of people, certain conversations are we're definitely better off. But there are times that those conversations do make a difference. And I think the key issue is recognizing and building on the more normative aspects of the relationship. So whether it's someone who's in your carpool, someone who's in your local library, or someone you go with to the gym, I think focusing in general on those fields has the potential of changing America. I think in a way we became so hyper-focused on politics, we tend to forget the other aspects of life. And so focusing on things like what you promote and ideas of well-being, of you know, exercising, spirituality, really things that can help bring people together, focusing on just ways to engage with one another and see each other and look each other in the eye, I think definitely will go a long way and help us recognize that our differences can definitely be overcome. Mm, so true. Do you think that television, like mainstream TV and the technology, these communication vehicles, are they affecting us, pulling us into uh, ideas that we are more different than we are alike? Absolutely. Yes. I think that we often more likely to say things that are not us. And we are, you know, we're more easily able to dehumanize another people when we're another person when we're sitting in front of a screen rather when we're looking at them in the face. And so I think absolutely making sure that we get back that human connection, the person to person, eye to eye connection has incredible potential in terms of building better bridges and not being so polarized. I think that it's sad that sometimes tech companies design things to be polarizing. There was a news story not long ago that Facebook is designed in some ways to benefit from polarized conversations. And countries that regulated that aspect of social media have less polarization. So places like Japan and other countries who said, you know, we're not going to let people just devolve into these terrible fights are seeing more political stability. And so, you know, the next time you sit in front of Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media platform you use and you feel like you're getting angry and enraged, tell yourself, I don't want big tech to make money off my life and my anger. You know, I choose to be happy rather than to, you know, get into this fight. And so, yeah, it's so important to recognize the role of technology in this and to recognize that we need to overcome that. Moving the conversation to ways religion can boost well-being, how does religion better our immune system? That's a terrific question. And I'm happy you mentioned the immune system because you're right, it does boost our immune system. People who are religious do have uh, a better immune system and actually have longer life expectancies. There are many benefits to religion. In fact, one of the studies was done by Duke University and it showed attending religious services to better immune system. The reasons for this are, um, are th there's a list of reasons. I'll try and go through it just so, our, you know, the listeners get the best idea of it. Yeah, thank you. I think one core aspect of religion that is hard to replace is the idea of coming together. 
especially in today's day and age, we're so busy, we're so overtasked, and our, there are so many people competing for our attention. And so, for example, in the Jewish faith on Shabbat on the Saturday, beginning Friday night all the way to Saturday night, we turn off all our phones, all our technology, emails, everything's gone. You sit around the dinner table, you look at people, you speak to them, and I think the idea of bringing people together is one of the most powerful ideas religion brings. And that's, I think, something that boosts our immune system. I was so saddened to see that England, uh, you know how we have here a Department of Education, Department of Health, Department of Defense. So England opened a, they have now a Secretary of Loneliness, the Department of Loneliness. Loneliness has become an epidemic in many countries. And it's just so sad to see that, you know, you have people who are struggling with loneliness. And so I think the ability of religion to bring people together is a key, key element. There was a fellow in France in the late 1800s. He's considered the father of modern sociology. His name was Emile Durkheim. He looked at a statistic and he noticed something very interesting. He was studying, his, book is, his book's name was La Suicide. He was studying suicide. And he noticed that the numbers for suicide made no sense because people who were Protestant were committing suicide at the highest numbers. People who were Catholic, a bit lower. And Jews were the lowest. And it just didn't make sense for him because, you know, in those days, Jews were persecuted and did not have an easy life. And, you know, Protestants seem to have had it best. So he tried to understand what is it that's causing this difference? Why the disparity between these three groups? And what he found was fascinating. He found that Jews go to synagogue, you know, three times a day and they try and go every day. And that Catholics also try and go every Sunday. And Protestants who were going the least and had the least sense of community were committing suicide at the highest rates. And so I think that's such a powerful example that about the ability of religion to literally save lives and really help people in difficult situations. I think those studies also showed themselves today when it comes to something that really brings tears to my eyes. Really, one of the worst things in our nation is teen suicide. Young, beautiful, charming, energetic teenagers who are, you know, they have every opportunity and their whole life is ahead of them. And yet, you know, they're, they're committing suicide at high rates. And what religion shows is that it does have the ability not only to create a sense of community, but also a sense of hope, a sense of optimism, a sense of purpose. And I think that's something that, you know, if just for that is so important to instill in people, to let them know that, you know, there is sort of an overall purpose and that goodness is there and that there is reason for hope and optimism. Yes. Oh, yes. How is being religious connected to education and wealth? Um, that's a good question. I think that uh, often religion is correlated with people getting better education and uh, also having a higher level of income. And I think it all comes back to the sense of structure that religion can provide. 
uh, knowing that, you know, things are, there are goals to pursue. You know, there's the famous uh, marshmallow study where they take kids and they put them in the room and they put a marshmallow on a plate in front of them. And they're actually, it's really funny when you watch it on YouTube. It's one of the, uh, the greatest studies. So you have a kid and the kid's looking at a marshmallow and you tell the kid, listen, if you are able to hold off with eating this marshmallow just five minutes, you'll get another marshmallow. But if you eat it within the first five minutes, then no additional marshmallow. And they, the adult leave the room, leaves the room. And of course, the kid doesn't know that he's on camera. <laughs> and you just see the kids sitting there and staring at the marshmallow. And it's really tempting. And some kids end up eating it and some kids end up waiting. And what the study found is that the kids who are able to delay gratification and wait five minutes end up being much more successful in life, are much more goal-oriented and are, are much better go-getters. And I think that people used to look at religion in a negative way in that sense, in the restrictive way that it manifested. But I think there's also a good side to it, which is telling kids, teenagers, or even adults that, listen, sometimes you want something now, but you know, tough luck, uh, you gotta wait a bit. And so I think that correlates very much with education and wealth where you're supposed to just sort of hold off and wait. Mm. Yeah, that comes with, I guess, um, some understanding about life and how everything works and makes sense. If we just do the right things, you know, good things will come. But I also believe in being joyful, no matter what's happening, just finding inner peace and being okay in, uh, in acceptance with whatever happens. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me too, not trying to please especially the body all the time, even when it wants to be pleased. I read the article you wrote on the ways religion can boost well-being. So I have, I think, two more questions. You wrote, being religious makes you happier, except if you live in Sweden or Denmark. So I'm just curious to know why. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I did write that. And yeah, people who are religious in America or around the world in general are happier. But uh, if, you're in, if you're in Sweden or Denmark, which are places that are very secular, that doesn't show itself as much statistically. And I think part of it is because in, you know, when you're in Sweden and Denmark, you're very much in the minority and you're very much not the norm. It's not necessarily that you're associated with any kind of, uh, I don't think you feel special or anything. I think in some ways, societies that are very, very secular uh, look down in re on religion in some ways. And I think that probably shows. So, you know, when someone goes in America to church on Sunday, they feel great about it. You know, they, they go, they're meeting people, they're enjoying themselves and they're connecting to a community, they connect to purpose, to something that they feel is greater than themselves, uh, as opposed to if they're in a place where, you know, really, you know, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I think it's harder to feel special or unique because it's just not something that's widely practiced. Right. So in a way, we don't need to be religious to enjoy well-being benefits. Uh, so I think it very much depends on where you're living, the society you're living in. I think most definitely here in the United States and Canada, there are great benefits for religion. Also, the idea of 
in Denmark and Sweden being an exception, I think that pertains specifically to happiness. I don't think that other issues such as life expectancy and other benefits that religion has, I don't think that those would necessarily be an exception in Sweden or Denmark. I think those countries also, people who are not connected to a sense of purpose, who are not connected to a sense of community, I think you know, they will not have the, the, the benefits that religion has in terms of a longer life expectancy, etc. You also mentioned how religion impact personal relationships and crime. Uh, that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, it's a question, obviously, everyone wants to tap in because sometimes when we speak of religion, we may associate it with, you know, religious violence or something like that. Uh, but I think that the statistics that show religion as something that brings people out of crime is are are true because it gives people a sense of responsibility and uh, we can sort of speak about all the side benefits of religion but the the bottom line is that religion does make some statements and you know thou shall not steal in the ten commandments and the idea that even when someone is not looking you're still liable. Uh, one example that I like giving is uh, if someone sort of goes through a red light and there's no one there looking, then they broke the law. But it doesn't really carry any significance unless they believe in sort of a moral context. So for example, if someone drives through a red light on the highway, uh, not on a highway, close to a highway, then and they were not caught, they may say, well, look, I did something dangerous. But it really depends on a moral compass. And so the idea of religion is that it helps people understand that, you know, there is right and there is wrong. And it does it it does impact the uh, the community. And I just give an example. I live here in Manhattan and we had a meeting once of religious leaders from different faiths. And it was specifically focusing on inner city issues. We had the meeting in Harlem and we were speaking about young people and how to better their lives. And what emerged is that you have these pastors who are uh, in churches there and mosques, and they are busying themselves with the question of what can we do to make sure kids are safe, to make sure they have meaning and purpose and that they feel like they have a sense of purpose. And that's pretty much what religion does there. It tells people, listen, there is a goal, there is reliability, there I'm sorry, there is liability, responsibility, and it it tries to create that sense of an internal moral compass as opposed to something external. Before I move on to some Final and unrelated questions, well-being questions. Would you like to say anything, add anything else about religion and well-being? Uh, thank you. Yes, I think that it's such an important topic. There's the religious side of things, meaning, you know, believing in certain systems. I'm Jewish. I believe in the Jewish religion. And then there's also the side of the, the benefits. And I think in the 60s and 70s, it was popular to sort of knock religion and sort of there was this secularism that looked down at religion. And I think in many ways, 
some of the same people who in the 60s and 70s looked down at religion and said, oh, we can do better, those same people are sort of starting to miss religion. When you see uh, community disintegrating, when you see people who are having a hard time coming together, I think that is something that helps people understand what uh, what the benefits of religion are. You know, there's a terrific book by Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam. He's uh, one of the greatest sociologists of our time. And he wrote a book called, first he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And what he noticed in this book, and it's really an incredible book, is that the number of people who go bowling today is higher than ever before. So more people are going bowling today more than ever. And yet, 50 years ago, the number of bowling teams in America was much bigger than today. And so as the name of the book indicates, more people are bowling alone than in, rather than in teams. And he uses a term called social capital. Social capital is the benefit that comes from people, you know, being kind, volunteering, being part of a community board, a parents association, whatever it is people do to contribute to a community. And I think that with the decline of religion in America, and this is what Robert Putnam notes, we have a huge decline in this social capital. And that hurts me for not even a religious reason, but just you know, I travel through sometimes middle America, I've been to Ohio, and you see some of these sort of decimated communities, and you recognize that, you know, there is a need for people to to be there for each other, to, to, to have a community to turn to, to have someone they can count on and trust. And I think that's something that America very much needs today and would help us heal because I think we can all agree we're, we're pretty wounded. And there are so many young people who are growing up, you know, just looking around for some kind of something to belong to, a community, a role model, someone to turn to if they have a hard time. And I think, you know, we do, we do need to make sure that that's there for people. Yes. I love the way you focus on the benefits of religion. That is very important that we know, um, that people know about it. The only thing I would say about religion that might not be as beneficial, let's say, the, uh, the rules, then also the fear that sometimes religious beliefs they impose in the human being. So we have less inquiry, less self-inquiry, less self-knowledge. And I do believe that a lot of the answers for our problems can be found within ourselves. Thank you again for um, talking to me about the benefits of being somebody like you are a wonderful person that is a religious person. <laughs> so that's, that's really it's great. Uh, coming to my final questions to you, what are you grateful for in this very moment? Thank you so much. Uh, that's, a, that's a question I try and remind my students of daily. Uh, there, there are so many studies that show the importance of gratitude. And I think that gratitude is something that starts with the basics. I think just sometimes we take for granted some of the basics, but I think, you know, just food, shelter, clothing, uh, you know, today access to Wi-Fi is definitely up there with those. But, uh, you know, just having the basics, I think, is something that we have to be so incredibly grateful for. 
And I'm also happy you bring that up because with all the negative news that we see, we sometimes fail to see how blessed we are and that we live in a generation where we have things that you know, the kings of France and England did not have 300 years ago. You know, you can sit and do your work and listen to any symphony that you'd like and order food. And it's just an incredible blessing. So I, I would say definitely focus on the basics. Yeah, the simple things, right? How do you define success? I think success very much depends on, I would say success is if you failed many, many times. I think people are afraid to fail. And I think that sometimes we're so afraid to fail that we just don't set goals. Success is not measured by how many times we didn't fail. Success is measured by the number of goals that we set and reaching a reasonable amount of those goals, even while failing the others. Mm, right. What is to be strong? To admit you were wrong. <laughs> right. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, hardest lesson to learn about myself. Um, I think just recognizing, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think that as a teacher, it's sometimes challenging because you uh, want to teach and, you know, there's always the kid who's making noise and you get upset at that kid. And I think that one of the most important lessons I learned is that it's not about the students as mu nearly as much as it's about me. And uh, is it okay if I share a, a quick story? Yes, absolutely. So there's a story from the Holocaust, actually, with um, there was a woman who was brought to the concentration camps to Auschwitz, and she was brought there with her son, and they were on the train, and the people who were going to the concentration camps were stuffed into these horrific cattle carts. And they were on these trains for three days straight and, you know, with barely food or water. And they finally get there and they get to this camp, which they're told is a, you know, labor camp, a place where they're going to work. And she sees that her son lost his shoe and she yells at him, how could you lose your shoe? How are we going to live here now without your shoe? And she was really frustrated and said, you know, you're so clumsy. You, you, I, I just can't believe you lost your shoe. They were then separated. And little did she know that that was the last thing that she ever told her son, because shortly thereafter, he was taken to the gas chambers and killed. And she decided afterwards uh, after the war, that she would never say a sentence to a child that she would regret if that would be her last sentence to the child. And to me, that was such an empowering lesson of focusing on positive things and just saying, saying good things. And I think recognizing the extent to which the way we behave changes others and not the other way around. I think that was to me one of the most powerful lessons. I have another question for you that might be related. Would you say that this was also the most valuable lesson that you've learned in life? Absolutely. You know, whenever it is, ask yourself, what could I have done to change this? Because it's really hard to change other people. It's hard to change ourselves, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, easier than changing other people. What never fails to make you happy? Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, get that a lot. <laughs> what is another word for healing? 
another word for healing. That's a good question. I would say finding purpose, finding new purpose. Are you afraid to die? Yes. Hmm. Why? I think that we live with, it's interesting, some comedians do this. They go to a room full of people and they say, raise your hand if you think one day you're going to die. And you'll be surprised that a lot of people don't raise their hand. <laughs> okay, yeah, basic truth, <laughs> ignoring that. <laughs> you know, we live with this illusion that, you know, it's never going to happen. But uh, So if you knew you would die soon, would you change anything about your life? That is such a good question. You know, I wish I, 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 sh I should start every day with these questions because they are such amazing, thought-provoking questions that really we should be asking ourselves. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I would say most definitely and, you know, be kinder. Absolutely. Mm, kinder. Do you believe in life after death? Uh, yeah, it's a basic belief of Judaism and I, I do believe in it. What kind of life? So obviously there's no, you know, I can't give to the exact last bit of, of it. When I majored in psychology, I, I wrote a paper about near-death experiences and the way people feel after sort of they go through a near-death experience. And so I assume it's something similar to that, something where you feel your soul sort of departing from your body. They often describe that they're hovering over the body and then just sort of a sense of content. If you knew that life would end here, this is all there is this moment or this lifetime, there's nothing after everything that ever been was just living with joy in peace, being kinder, like you said, would you be okay with that? Um, I think my life would look very different if I had that belief. I think I would be less kind. I think that a lot of people who are altruistic do do it for belief in the afterlife and faith. And so I think a large amount of altruism comes from that. So maybe I would be more selfish. Wow, that's interesting. The opposite happens to me. I think life is what's happening now, this moment, and that's it. That gives more purpose, meaning. I'm just a completely different person when I really like embody that idea. So and I'm just wondering why other people think differently. They would act differently. That's a good question. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, so my wife and I like hosting people and we love that people come to us. Uh, someone called us that three people were traveling and needed a place to stay and we hosted them. And, you know, we were very happy they came. But, you know, it involves getting towels, changing the sheets, making sure the house looks nice. And, uh, you know, we do that fairly often. And as happy as we are to have people, I think actions like that, actions like giving charity, actions like, you know, staying up extra late to help someone, I think those are things that are most common among people who believe in the afterlife. And I think, of course, I would still be kind and gracious and nice, but in cases where it's inconvenient, sometimes very inconvenient, I think that you don't see the same levels of altruism. One of the basic beliefs I have found to be true is that the more we do for others, the happier we feel. That's like a basic truth. By giving, we just receive. 
Yes, no, absolutely. We it's definitely something that we're happier with and and kindness puts, you know, oxytocin into our brain and we dopamine and we really feel good. I mean, humans are hardwired to be kind and to be nice. And so most definitely being nice is something that is is for our own benefit. It's good for us. But, uh, you know, there are times that being kind to others can can really be hard. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> If, yeah, right. That is true in a way. My last question to you. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Oh, uh, three things about my own life or just in general? In life in general. Um, I would say that, like I said before, kindness is good. It's it's good for us. We uh, we're hard hardwired to be kind. That's I would say one truth. The other truth is, I would say, you know, you you do need to look out for yourself. You can't as much as much as we would all like to be extremely kind and gracious. I think you know there is you and. That's something that you also need to, uh, reg you know, regard. Um, and the third thing I would say that I know as important is don't impugn other people's intentions. So if someone has an opinion that's different than you or even seems to be outrageous, uh, they're probably doing it for a bunch of reasons which are not necessarily bad. And I think that's so important, especially today where, People rush to say, oh, you believe this because you are X, Y, or Z. And I think that, you know, giving people a break and knowing that people have their opinions because of whatever motivates those opinions, I think that is is, is something that's uh, very important to be mindful of. Thank you so much for our conversation. It has been meaningful and fun. Thank you. Yeah, this was terrific. And I, I can't believe I didn't think of some of those questions you asked. I, I really appreciate it there. They were fantastic. And, and really, thank you for that. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, future projects? Thank you. Uh, so I have my blog, rabbipupko.com. That's mainly where I post my stuff. And um, that's uh, pretty much it. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Rabbi. I'll Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye for now. For listening to learn more about Rabbi Popko, please visit his website rabbipopko.com. That is R A B B I P O U P K O.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.